This is Anna, producer at Secure Sessions. We wanted to tell you about our exclusive sponsor and top-tier VPN provider. IPVanish has been a great resource for all of our digital security needs. Now our listeners will have access to great benefits including lightning fast speeds, a secure no-logging policy, easy-to-use apps for all major devices, and much more. Go to IPVanish.com and enter promo code SESSIONS to receive 20% off any plan. Welcome back to the Secure Sessions podcast, sponsored by IPVanish. This is Josh Galliardi, CTO at IPVanish. I'm joined today by David Christopher, Communications Manager for Open Media Canada. Uh, David, thanks very much for speaking with us today. Thanks very much for having me. So, uh, as people can hear, uh, you're not originally Canadian. Uh, there's a bit of a brogue remaining there. Uh, there certainly is, yes. I uh, moved over here to Canada, what, about three and a half years ago? Uh, and for most of that time, I've been uh, in this role uh, here at Open Media, uh, working on digital rights uh, challenges uh, here in Canada and also uh, right around the world. As most folks know, Canada is in the midst of a large governmental change with a number of social factors in play, but at the same time is absolutely in the throes of the same corporate versus governments versus citizens three-way battle that uh, many other countries are part of. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the current privacy situation in Canada and, and what the hot issues are. Sure. Um, yeah, as, as you alluded to there, we uh, we fairly recently had a federal election uh, here in Canada. Uh, it saw a new government uh, led by uh, Justin Trudeau as our new prime minister uh, take power. Uh, now, the previous government, uh, run by Stephen Harper's conservatives, uh, really left Canadians with a shocking uh, privacy deficit. Uh, over the course of the previous government, we saw a lot of revelations, uh, many of them via what Edward Snowden revealed about how Canada's spy agency, uh, the Communications Security Establishment, uh, they're basically our version of the NSA, uh, how they were really recklessly spying on people around the world, but also spying on Canadians actually collecting Canadians' personal information and sharing it with uh, spy agencies uh, overseas. Uh, we've also seen the previous government introduce incredibly controversial uh, legislation that undermines privacy, uh, including the notorious uh, Bill C-51. Uh, the Globe and Mail, which is uh, Canada's uh, one of Canada's largest circulation newspapers, actually described Bill C-51 as a secret police act, uh, now, that's a fairly centrist, center-right newspaper, and for them to use language like that, I think, just underlines some of the real problems with that legislation. Our new government, on the other hand, has promised not to repeal Bill C-51, but at least to open up a consultation on it and to uh, roll back uh, some of what it sees as the, as the most uh, worrying elements. Uh, so clearly, that's a big priority for us at Open Media but also for, for many, many other groups across this country and for the 300,000 uh, Canadians who spoke out uh, against both C-51 as part of our campaign, uh, uh, joint campaign uh, last. So as we look at C-51, um, what we really see is enablement of a bunch of the sorts of spying that when outed were previously regarded as, uh, shall we politely say, extra-legal. Yes, that's uh, uh, the most 
unfortunate, one of the most unfortunate parts of, of Bill C-51. And, you know, there's such a long list. We could spend this whole podcast, I'm sure, uh, talking about what's wrong with this legislation. But certainly one of the most concerning aspects is the way it grants thesis. Uh, that's the uh, Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, uh, basically gives them uh, uh, police powers, uh, gives them the power to go in and uh, disrupt uh, groups and organizations uh, for a whole range of reasons. Uh, now, the government, the previous government justified this by saying it's needed to keep us safe uh, from terrorism. But when you actually read the legislation, uh, it's clear that these uh, really uh, sweeping new powers could be used to target uh, anyone uh, undermining, for example, the uh, uh, economic interests of the country. So, you know, uh, here in British Columbia, that could be people uh, peacefully and democratically protesting uh, a pipeline, uh, for example. Um, even, uh, you know, there's uh, uh, many people in Quebec want to uh, secede from Canada Bill C-51 even includes people uh, uh, who are, you know, opposed to the national integrity of Canada as part of, you know, that list of reasons why uh, that would justify uh, surveillance and, and disruption. And a lot of these powers can also be exercised uh, without even a warrant, uh, without any judicial oversight. Uh, and this is against a backdrop where, of course, the existing oversight mechanisms uh, for CSIS have been shown, uh, you know, time and again to be uh, woefully inadequate. So uh, there's a big mess for the new government to clean up. Uh, we, uh, you know, my colleagues uh, met with the uh, public safety minister just a few weeks ago. Um, it certainly seems like they're interested in uh, uh, working with civil society to try and uh, roll back some of the worst problems of this bill. Uh, but we'll really need to uh, be very, uh, uh, have a very watchful eye, engage very actively in this process, I think, if we're really to restore the uh, rights and freedoms, the basic democratic liberties that Canadians have uh, taken for granted. Now, with your newly elected leader, who's from a younger generation, uh, much more connected to, uh, you know, perhaps uh, technological matters of modern life, uh, you actually have had some open commentary from him on C-51 itself. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, last year, uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, he surprised many people by actually voting for Bill C-51. He upset a lot of his own party's grassroots at the time. A lot of his own party's uh, uh, supporters uh, were, were you know, pretty appalled that he could vote for a, a, leg a legislation like this. Um, that said, uh, you know, all along, he has been saying, you know, that there were you know, problems with this bill, that if he took power, he'd try to uh, uh, fix those problems. Uh, but part of the challenge that we face as a digital rights organization and uh, really that other uh, civil liberties organizations are facing as well is this government has yet to come out and say explicitly what parts of Bill C-51 it wants to keep and what parts of Bill C-51 it's open to uh, repealing or amending. And until we really get that information from the government, it's going to be very difficult to uh, make an accurate judgment about how uh, credible they are, they are on this uh, issue. Um, for example, one of the really big concerns with C-51 is the way in which it gives our spy agencies, uh, like the CSE, like CSIS, uh, the right to collect and store information that's held about individual Canadian citizens, 
uh, by any branch of the government. By, and, you know, the government here is sweeping, uh, you know, many, many different departments. Uh, this legislation uh, actually lets our spy agencies collect, almost act as a central kind of vacuum uh, that uh, hoovers up all these uh, different pieces of information about Canadians. That effectively overturns decades of uh, public sector privacy protections and safeguards. And yet we've yet to see Justin Trudeau uh, come out against that. And in fact, he's on the record as saying positive things about that. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's a bit of a mixed bag so far, really, uh, as, as far as uh, we can see. Uh, certainly, we're looking to this upcoming consultation uh, that will deal with uh, C-51 and also a range of other privacy and national security issues uh, to really uh, get a grip on uh, how how real, how genuine the uh, Liberal Party are about addressing these problems. Now, at the same time as we speak, hopefully, about a new government potentially addressing, uh, well, let's let's be blunt, the creation of dossiers on citizens for easy access, which have, access to which, of course, always spreads uh, to generic law enforcement. Um, but at the same time, we've got what many in the states are regarding as a fundamental attack on sovereignty in the form of the, Trans in the, form of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So with TPP, we've got a an agreement negotiated in secret. It seems like at least in Canada, there's some promise of open debate, even if there's been none here. Uh, so how is TPP acceptance and implementation proceeding? Uh, yeah, you're right to say that the government and uh, parliament have launched a nationwide series of consultations, uh, basically about the question of whether Canada should sign up to the TPP. Uh, you know, the previous government, Stephen Harper, actually signed Canada up to this deal uh, in the middle of the election campaign, uh, which was a re remarkably irresponsible thing to do. It effectively almost tied the hands of the uh, incoming uh, government. Uh, and the result has been that Canada has now signed on to the TPP, but it's yet to ratify it, meaning it's yet to sort of formally uh, confirm that it will uh, implement the TPP. So we still have that option. We still have the ability to uh, get out of it. Uh, but we're going to need a majority in Parliament. Basically, we're going to need the governing party uh, to uh, decide it doesn't want to uh, sign up to this deal. The thing about the TPP, and we've we've been engaging on this issue for oh many years now, over three, four years, uh, pretty much since it first got going. Uh, we have grave concerns about the copyright rules in the TPP. Uh, one specific example, it's going to extend uh, Canada's uh, copyright rules, uh, copyright terms. Uh, from 50 years uh, after the uh, death of a creator to 70 years. So an extra 20 years in which all kinds of uh, uh, material, uh, including some of our most, you know, national cultural uh, treasures, works of literary uh, uh, fiction, uh, etc., would be held out of the public domain. Um, I think where, where I'm going with this is the more people find out about the TPP, the less they like it. Um, that's something that we've seen as these consultations have moved across uh, Canada. It's certainly something we saw in the uh, consultation uh, when it took place here in Vancouver. Um, and now those consultations are going to uh, Toronto and Montreal, uh, points east. Uh, and I think the members of parliament on that uh, consultation panel are actually hearing from a lot of Canadians from all walks of life 
uh, concerned about what the TPP will mean for our everyday lives. So I think if we we look at any of these trade agreements, there's a tendency when we hear the word trade to think that this is primarily about timber or steel or fishing or something. But one of the things that's very noticeable about TPP is the extent to which particularly media and internet companies have applied pressure to the process to expand uh, the role of you know large American copyright conglomerates uh, and their influence into other countries. Um, now, Canada's got a long history with uh, access to U.S. content as a, you know, as, as a very popularist issue. I remember as a child in northern Vermont uh, seeing people, uh, you know, smuggling U.S. satellite dishes across the border so that they could, uh, you know, set them up in Quebec and, and receive U.S. TV. <laughs> and that absolutely continues today, and TPP seems to be strengthening uh, the ability of those giant media companies to sort of strangle free access to media. Yeah, and that's what been one of the really big problems with the process, because uh, you alluded it to it being a secret in that the public were completely excluded from the, I think it was over three years of uh, TPP negotiations, uh, civic interest groups, public interest groups uh, completely were left uh, outside. But the talks were not secret to these big uh, Hollywood conglomerates, to the major uh, uh, corporations, uh, they all got a seat at the table. Um, and that's why the end result is this deal that's completely biased uh, toward the interest of these uh, giant media conglomerates and against the interests of uh, everyday internet users. Uh, so I think that's why that now that the deal is finally out in the open, um, because, of course, we were relying on leaked documents and all this sort of thing while it was actually being negotiated just to have an idea of what was going on. But now that it's out in the open, now that it can be analyzed, now that people are learning more about what's actually in there, uh, uh, we're seeing more and more people uh, uh, turn against it. And I hope certainly that the in the U.S., um, I think it's shaping up to be a bit of a big uh, election issue down there. You know, I know Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders have all declared themselves against the deal. Uh, there seems to be a bit of a push on uh, in Congress to try and maybe ram this through during the lame duck period after the election. I know that's something that our U.S. supporters are uh, uh, worried about. It's something that we're watching closely. Uh, but I do hope that the U.S. does get a, a full open national consultation where the voice of uh, everyday citizens, everyday Internet users can finally be heard because that's only fair. We absolutely agree. Um, if you look at the provisions that have been pushed inside TPP, uh, you know, you talk to many copyright specialists and they'll say that, you know, the most egregious abuses, uh, the most egregious abuses in U.S. copyright law are the archaic statutory damages provision, which are, you know, where we've got $150,000 statutory damages that are completely out of line with the price of a 99 cent song on iTunes, uh, as well as the more or less effectively infinite extension of uh, the lifetime of copyrights. Uh, both of which, with the world running faster and access to media being cheaper rather than through, you know, expensively reproduced phono records, uh, these seem very dated concepts and exactly the wrong direction to go. And yet, it looks as if the core of TPP has been to export those worst provisions globally. Um, so, as we, how much of a role in the leaked documents about TPP or in? C-51 or any of the uh, Snowden revelations about Canadian involvement, 
How much do we see pressure from the states on the Canadian government as a, as a driving factor for bad policy? Oh, certainly. I think the U.S. was by far the most uh, influential um, uh, player within the TPP negotiations. Uh, the role of the uh, big uh, uh, conglomerates down in the States playing a particularly powerful role. And often it seemed at times that Canada, uh, the many other smaller countries in the TPP, were basically being bullied or forced to go along with a, with a lot of this. And, uh, and of course, that doesn't sit well with uh, Canadians or Australians or, or uh, residents of uh, uh, the, the 12 participating uh, TPP nations. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's definitely a, a, a real issue here. Uh, and, of course, it's one that, you know, if the TPP had been negotiated democratically and openly and fairly, uh, uh, we wouldn't be facing this problem because citizens from all the uh, 12 uh, participating nations would have had a voice uh, from the very beginning. Um, you know, that's why as a, as a, you know, our call is basically that the uh, TPP in its current form is unacceptable. Um, if we do want to have a deal uh, that does uh, uh, loosen trade barriers among these uh, 12 nations, we need to go back to the drawing board uh, and we need to open it up uh, to the public, uh, to public, uh, uh, to, to be, to ensure that citizens uh, can have a say and actually that citizens can have the decisive say uh, so that this this deal actually meets the needs of everyday people and not just the needs of the big uh, conglomerates. So let's talk a little bit about the state of free internet in Canada. You know, here we are talking about hoping and fighting for, uh, for open internet access and privacy and security concerns not to get worse over time. Uh, but let's, let's talk about the actual state of the Canadian internet. So you're in a situation similar to many, if not most countries, where you have strong incumbent telecoms and cable providers that are effectively able to set rules in the marketplace uh, that affect all players through lack of competition. Uh, so if, if, if I asked uh, you know, a typical Canadian 20-year-old about whether they were happy with their internet service or their cell phone service, uh, what would I hear? Oh, I think the first thing you'd hear would be a complaint about the price. Um, you know, Canadians pay some of the highest prices for internet service, wired and uh, wireless, uh, in the industrialized world. Uh, I know Americans also pay pretty steep prices comparatively, uh, but it's even worse up here. And that's because we, we've, uh, in America, there's a, already a concentrated uh, telecom market where, you know, for wireless, for example, you've really just got the big four, uh, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T. Uh, up here, we've only got three giant conglomerates, Bell, Rogers, and TELUS. They control over 93% of the uh, marketplace. Uh, we've been working as, as hard as we can uh, to try and open up that market because once you get more choice, more competition in the marketplace, of course, prices will start to go down. But because the big three, as they're called up here, have such a stranglehold uh, on the market, uh, Canadians end up paying these uh, ridiculous prices for, uh, for cell phone service and for uh, 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 wireless, uh, uh, cell phone service and for uh, home broadband. So as you get outside the denser population band in southern Canada, what's the rural access situation like? Uh, oh, yes. And this is one of the, uh, you know, Canada's a huge second largest country in the world. Uh, and quite a, a lot of, of the population do live in those more far-flung uh, areas. 
um, so and and if you know one of the most recurring uh, problems that we we hear here at Open Media is from uh, residents in the uh, northern regions in the Northern Territories, uh, just about the symbolic state of uh, uh, internet uh, in those parts. Um, it, it, it's so. For example, you know some of these plans. If you live up in the Yukon or in the Northwest Territories. Uh, uh, you you might have an internet plan that might have a monthly data cap of just you know, five or ten gigabytes. You're barely enough to watch a, a couple of Netflix movies, uh, and you're 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 done with your data cap. So uh, um, that's forcing that's of course denying uh, people in those regions uh, the right to use the internet in ways in which uh, people living in the big cities uh, take for granted. Uh, and of course, we also see uh, ridiculous prices, especially if you live in some of the more far flung. Uh, communities that are reliant on uh, satellite services. How about municipal broadband? Is that uh, is that a phenomenon at all, or is or uh, have the incumbents successfully blocked those sorts of initiatives? Oh, that's a fascinating question because this is actually going to be uh, a real priority for us over the year ahead. Uh, because we have seen some great examples of municipal broadband uh, really uh, taking off and proving a success here. Uh, there's a town called Olds. Uh, in Alberta, uh, where they have a municipally run uh, fiber internet service uh, that's offering uh, you know, gigabit speeds at a, a far more affordable rate uh, than the uh, big three uh, can offer. Uh, and so what we want to see is, is, is to take that model uh, that's been pioneered by Olds here, but also by towns like Sandy in Oregon, Chattanooga, many, many other examples across the U.S., uh, where it's clear that when local communities, local cities uh, take that power into their own hands, take the responsibility for building their own uh, internet networks, uh, that results in uh, much faster, much more affordable internet for their local population. And it also makes those areas a real magnet for inward investment. Uh, you know, businesses love, you know, if you're uh, a business owner and you're wondering where you're going to locate your next office or where you want to make your next investment, uh, then a city that has uh, a fiber internet at uh, top speeds is going to be a far more attractive destination uh, than a city where you're going to be relying on the big telecom conglomerates. Uh, so this is going to be a real uh, priority for us. Uh, we have a big community here of supporters. You're over half a million uh, Canadians right across the country. And I think uh, there's a real hunger for this. And I think uh, people are going to want to be reaching out to their local decision makers, local councillors, uh, city councillors, uh, uh, to ask them to uh, uh, push this forward uh, because people have really, they're just fed up with the high prices and the poor service that they're getting from the incumbent telcos. Well, we, we've always thought that this is a really interesting phenomenon. As someone who's studied the history of technology, one of the things I think is just, I, I don't know whether to say it's if it's funny or sad, is the way that this struggle absolutely mirrors what happened with rural electrification 100 years ago, uh, that it required... Uh, it required a set of citizens and a set of uh, public service organizations to take on these projects and take on some of the uh, pre-existing electrical monopolies in order to, um, you know, flex the cost of capital that municipalities have to be able to build an infrastructure that might have a longer payoff interval than a company is willing to invest in. Um, so, you know, the same thing we see it's always cheaper to put one more set of wires into Manhattan or Toronto than it is 
to actually build out infrastructure into the hinterlands. So, so Open Media has worked on a number of uh, privacy projects along the way as well. I just wanted to quickly touch on um, some of the uh, some of the free expression and uh, uh, digital future activism that that your organization has taken on. Uh, is there, you know, as we're talking about free and open internet and open access to media, there, there's a lot of little things that have to be done. Um, you want to talk some about any of your successes there? Sure. I mean, we, we've actually, when it comes to uh, free expression and copyright, uh, we've actually crowdsourced uh, an action plan. Uh, we reached out to, I think it was well over uh, 100,000 people, uh, not just here in Canada, but around the world. Um, and what we heard back was that we really people, when it comes to shaping copyright law, uh, people really want three uh, big things. Uh, they want, they certainly do. One thing we heard loud and clear is they do want the role of creators, uh, artists and creators and musicians uh, to be respected. Um, uh, uh, but in many cases, it's not the, the artists and creators who, are, of course, are at fault for copyright law. It's, the, it's really the, the media conglomerates who are acting as the middlemen uh, who are uh, really pushing these extreme copyright laws. So uh, people wanted a, a much more uh, respect for the actual role of artists and creators. Uh, secondly, people really wanted to prioritize a free expression as a principle, uh, meaning content should only ever get take, taken down uh, from the internet after a fair and uh, fair process with uh, appropriate uh, balances and oversight, uh, instead of the current system where it seems like uh, we have copyright trolls sending out automated messages by the millions uh, to try and get uh, content uh, taken down, and that does obviously uh, impact our our freedom of expression. And thirdly, and, and again and again, we were hearing people just want for these rules uh, that affect all of our lives uh, to be shaped democratically uh, so that everyday Internet users can actually have a say uh, in how, uh, how these rules are crafted um, as we go forward. And of course, this ties back with how the TPP was negotiated in this highly closed and secretive way. Uh, because the uh, uh, conglomerates and corporations who were pushing the TPP knew, I think, that if they tried to do that in the open, there was no way that their extreme uh, proposals on copyright would ever see the light of day. So they need to operate behind closed doors. As a digital rights organization, we have a real uh, participatory culture here where we, we really believe in crowdsourcing ideas because the best policy ideas often come from uh, everyday citizens, uh, come from the people who will, whose lives will be most affected uh, by them. Well, we all know that all that's necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. Uh, certainly, you're not doing nothing. Uh, we very much enjoyed having you on Secure Sessions, David. Thank you for advocating for digital rights with open media. Uh, it's just good to hear that there's good work being done. So thanks very much for talking to us today, David. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure, and I really enjoyed our wide-ranging conversation. Don't forget you can listen to Secure Sessions on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, or of course at ipvanish.com slash podcast. Until next time, this is Josh Galliardi with IPVanish.